Well, I, I think I said last week that um, we would be considering the Psalms for a week or two uh, from here on, so that we can um, we can get a sort of a prophetic angle uh, on Christ, because the Psalms contain so much prophecies. It's absolutely incredible, and uh, I got to be honest, um, I didn't want to do what I've done tonight. But uh, once you start, you can call it away. Like you know, what I like to have. There's ten psalms, um, virtually ten or so psalms, that contain uh, prophecies concerning the birth, the death, the life, the resurrection, the ascension, and uh, the priesthood of Christ. And um, according to one uh, man, there's thirty, thirty prophecies. Uh, that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime, which I think is absolutely astounding. Uh, but of course, they spread over ten psalms, and I started at, at Psalm two, and I got to be honest, it didn't get no further than Psalm two. So I don't want uh, this prophecy sort of thing to to be just about the psalms. But um, I have just talked about Psalm two tonight, so it's a bit of a warning to you. Or not so much a warning, perhaps uh, about quarter and nine, you'll be thinking, oh, you're not going to go on to another psalm. <laughs> he spent all his time on this psalm. So, Psalm 2. You know, last time, I think it was last time, that I said that Christ alerts us as to the prophetic significance uh, of the psalms. Uh, when he talked about Moses, the prophets, and the psalms, all spoke concerning him. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. We saw that from resurrection morning. Remember when the two were walking on the road to Emmaus? He actually just mentioned Moses and the, and the prophets. And then when they met up again then in the upper room, I think it's Luke chapter 24, uh, when he had all the disciples there, he mentions the the law the law of Moses, which of course are the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. But they all talk about Jesus. And if you went down to uh, the Bible bookshops, you will see books that were Jesus in Exodus and Jesus in Leviticus and Jesus in Numbers. He's all over the place in Moses' first five books. And then of course the prophets. Then you would expect to find uh, references to Christ's life and death and resurrection and stuff uh, in the prophets because, well, the, the clue is in the word. They are prophets. They prophesy of the one to come. But then there's the Psalms. You know, and the Psalms, you would have thought that the sentimental, emotional hymn book of the Bible would have such hard-hitting evidence concerning the Messiah. Evidence that would comprehensively identify him through what he did and through what he said, where he went, where he was born and this type of thing. Evidence that would produce the driving force behind the progress of God's eternal plan. It's all there in, in, in uh, the book of Psalms. This amazing outline of God's plan of salvation is there so plain for us, even in the book of Psalms and evidence, of course, that would also give the Bible itself a supernatural feel. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? Because it is full of prophecy. 
It is, uh, it is written by someone who knows the end from the beginning. And even in the Psalms, these sentimental, emotional pieces of poetry, a lot of them, and yet God shows us how supernatural the Word of God is by what He has written there in the Psalms. You know, and you, would have, uh, you wouldn't have thought it, but they do. And as I said, there are at least ten psalms that speak directly into the life, the character of Christ. And they give us thirty, at least thirty important snippets of detail about, about his birth, about his life, about the cross, about the resurrection, even the ascension, and his eternal priesthood. It's all contained there in the psalms. You know, when you think that these books, or this book, these psalms, were written at least a thousand years before Christ ever appeared on the scene of time, then these psalms constitute a very remarkable book. And perhaps it would be a good idea to spend uh, ten Thursday nights looking at each psalm. And we don't go into but... Uh, you know, they are there for us and uh, perhaps someone else could take up the, the strain of, um, of going through each psalm. You know, we've gone through them all in ministries over the years, but uh, to bring them all together just to see how remarkable the book of Psalms is. You know, it's so often when you're uh, preparing a, a service, uh, you think, oh, well, what am I going to read to start? Sophie does this every Sunday morning about 25 past 10. What am I going to read to start? And uh, I'll have a look in the Psalms. You know, that'll be okay. But when you think that they are absolutely incredible, then uh, it's it's a good thing to look into the Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm number 2. You know, it's a Psalm that uh, actually mentions the sacred title that the New Testament writers continually use when identifying the Son of God. It's the title Christ. Christ. Why do the, do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. And there it is. The word Anointed. This is the title of Christ. You know the actual Hebrew word is the word Messiah, and uh, of course we would pronounce it Messiah, and uh, the Greeks would pronounce it Christ. That's what we have here: Messiah, and we would pronounce it Messiah. You know, when it was translated into Greek, of course, Christ. So when the woman of Samaria said, we know the Messiah is coming, she said in one verse, which we will have a look at in a minute, and then in the net, when she goes to the, the men to tell her that I found a man who told me everything that I ever did, is not this the Christ? She uses the two words. She uses the word Messiah, and she uses the word Christ, because they are the same word. One is Hebrew, and one is Greek. You know, and uh, that woman, this is what she says uh, in John chapter 4, I know that Messiah is coming. And John, 
uh, sort of as he always uh, as his want is he sort of dis, you know sort of gives us a little bit of understanding there because he you know she didn't say the Christ when she was talking uh, as uh, we see some people say I, I know that the Messiah has come in who is called Christ that's John just giving us a little explanation uh, for us Gentiles when he comes he will tell us all things and Jesus said to her I who speak to you I'm here and then of course a bit later on the woman then left her water pot went away into the city and said to the men come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did could this be the Christ could this be the Christ so that we can see that the title Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah which means anointed one so the, t- the very title of Christ Jesus Christ is actually written for us here uh, in Psalm 2 but notice with me two things about this word his anointed his anointed now the word anointed is to be means to be set apart consecrated for a particular service now when we go through the Old Testament we know that the priests were anointed with a special uh, a special blend of oil and of course the kings were anointed if you remember the story of, uh, of Samuel anointing uh, David uh, the Bible says he took, a, he took his horn of oil and went to anoint the king so we can see that uh, ministry and uh, sort of royalty were all set apart for God, for his service, by the anointing of oil. You know, and uh, that's, uh, that's very clear for us when we look in the Old Testament. They are set apart for a particular purpose. It's a particular purpose to reign or to minister. You know, and your Jesus is set apart, he's consecrated for the work of redemption. Uh, Jesus uh, sort of takes up the strain for us. He sort of builds on Psalm 2 when in, uh, he quotes Isaiah 61, of course, for us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And here we have uh, the same word. It's the word anointing. Only this time, it's not um, like Psalm 2, but it's a function. Have you noticed that? It's not a a title like it is in Psalm 2. He's called the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2. It's a title that sets him apart. But here in uh, Isaiah 61, it's not so much a title that the word sort of conveys, but a function, a role that he must play. You know, we can see that from the two uh, passages of Scripture, that, the, uh, that he is, Christ is, or Jesus is, the Messiah, not only in name, you know, um, this isn't just a title that he bears. I thank God that uh, he's got so many names, but they're just not titles. They're not going to some of you know, we got an, I got a name, it's Terence. It's, uh, it just sets me apart from everyone else. Teddy got a name, Terence got a name. I'm not dead. 
Who would have thought that there would be two Terences in a small congregation? <laughs> Whatever, but there you are. And it, but the solid is, it doesn't say what you do, do it there? You know, like in, in, in Wales, it's Evans the News, or Evans the Milk, or Jones the Blacksmith, or something. You know, there's got to be something else added to the title in order for you to know what the function of that person is. You know, I'm a pastor of a church. You know, and uh, Joel, Joel, who would have thought that Joel, what do you do, Joe? Admin. Admin. Joel, who would have thought that Joel was in admin? You know, building stuff for spas and things. No, his name doesn't portray that. His name doesn't give you any idea of what he does or, or who he is. Just a title. You know, and you perhaps we look at all the names of Jesus. You know, but they're all functions. They're all functionable. They all do something. You know, and Jesus is the vine because he gives us his life, uh, and he and he keeps us. Um, Makes us fruitful on the vine. He's the door because we go through him to God. He's the way because he has made it with his own precious blood. So every title that Jesus has is not only a title, but it suggests a function, a purpose. You know, we can revel in that. Because anything that we need, all we've got to do is look at Jesus and see if he has a title. You know, it's like today, isn't it? We've got, a, we've got an app for that. There's an app for that. You know, Matthew just had a new boiler put in. And um, he's, he's got an app on his phone now that he can, he can work his boiler from his phone. Because he's got an app. Right? Now, unfortunately, on Monday he lost his phone. So I said, well, how are you going to manage now? She said, well, i got to get up off my chair now and i got to walk all the way to the wall and press a couple of buttons like we have until I get a new phone so I can put a new app on it. I got an app for that. Well, you know, Jesus has got a name for everything that we go through. Everything that you and I need in life, from cradle to grave, or from cradle to glory, God has got an app for it. And his name is Jesus. And you and he's got so many names. So everything is covered. And here, it is the anointed one. And he's been anointed for service. It's a function that he, um, that he takes up. So he's not Messiah in name only. We don't just call him Jesus Christ. The Christ means something. Something very important. You know, it's a ministry that he conducts. A purpose that he performs. What does he say? Or what does it say of him? I have come to break, to bind up the brokenhearted. I have come to set the captives free. You know, in his own words, he said, I have come to seek and save those that are lost. You see, everything about him is functional. You know, he's not just a figurehead of Christianity. Like so many other sort of uh, leaders of religions, they are figureheads of their religion. But with Christ, he is full of purpose and full of functionality. And what we need, we can get from him. And that's what the beauty of this you know, they have come to set the captives free. He is the Messiah, but he has a role to play in the redemption of his people. He has a role to play in the sanctification of his people. He has a role to play in introducing us to the Father. He has a role to play in clothing us with righteousness. All these roles are played out by the titles of Christ. But notice also, he is described as 
the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. Which is, I think, is very, very important. You know, the Jews asked him on a number of occasions, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things? You know, remember when he upturned the tables in the in the temple and started to whip people about the fa- the, the the head with reeds and stuff. Then you know they got a little bit miffed with him, and uh, I suppose the obvious thing was to ask him, "Well, what authority have you got to do all this? What sign can you give us to do all these things?" You want, you know, there's a part of me would say, "How dare you ask?" The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How dare you ask your own Messiah what authority he has? Don't you know that he is the anointed one? Don't you know that he is the Lord's anointing? You know, he's been anointed by the authority of God himself. He has eternal credentials, divine qualifications. Why? Because Jehovah himself has anointed me to do these things he set me apart to do these things he sanctified me to do these things you know we've seen uh, over the last couple of Sunday mornings that Jeremiah was set apart by God in the womb he was sanctified to a certain position to a certain job that he had to do and God has done that to Christ he's anointed him to do these things in fact a number of places in the gospels Jesus ascribed all his authority to God the words he says and the works that I do they're not of mine listen to what he says in John uh, chapter 14 and verse 10 do you not believe that I am uh, in the Father and the Father in me the words that I speak I don't speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me he does the works so not only is he God in the flesh but he commands the authority of God the Father and when he came he came with a divine mandate so what you know when he whatever he did whatever he said it was divinely mandated upon him the words that he said they weren't his he says I'm speaking what I hear from my father the works that he did they weren't his I do what the father tells me so when I tip over the tables and whip people around the ears with a with a reed it's I do it because God has anointed me to do it and whatever he did whether it was good in our eyes or bad in our eyes he was doing it because he had been anointed he was the Lord's anointed let me go a bit further into the psalm and I'm quite sort of taken back by the, uh, the movement of history that it seems to uh, suggest and uh, I think it's um, amazing if you, can, if you can imagine that when David wrote this psalm there was an expectation or an expectancy of Messiah you know Moses had promised him promised him to come and, the, and God himself had promised him to come in the garden so there was an expectancy of, uh, of him coming you wonder, when you expect something wonderful like that you would expect him to have a royal fanfare. You would expect him to have a ticket tape um, procession. The people would line the streets with flowers 
and palm trees and things that when he came on the scene everyone would stop what they're doing it would be a, a, a JFK moment that everybody knew where they were when Messiah put his feet upon the ground you know and David was amongst that uh, messianic expectancy but what he writes blows you away it absolutely blows you away and this is what it's, he says why do the nations rage and people plot a vain thing the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed what a difference what a difference this person who should have been welcomed with open arms a state procession should have been there for him from his own people at least and yet included in these nations is the nation of Israel who turned against him in so many different ways and still has is uh, turned against him is anointed the, mess- the Messiah the one that God had promised turfed out of the people what did John say? he came to his own and his own received him not you know we've already seen in our studies how Satan leapt into action as soon as the plan of salvation was unveiled to him in the garden you know in order to thwart that plan by destroying the lineage of Christ through one devious scheme or another do you know as I was writing that I thought of Dick Dastardly you know who Dick Dastardly in the wacky races if he concentrated on his race he'd win every race but he, all he concentrates is on stopping other people winning it and so he loses it every time you know, and I, I used to sit down and look at him and think why doesn't he learn he's got the best car you know it's, the, it's a rocket propelled car and he can go quicker than any because he shoots off he shoots off about 10 miles in order to set a plan uh, to stop the others going past him and of course it always backfires and you think to yourself when are you going to learn Dick dastardly <laughs> and then you think about Satan and he's exactly the same so deceived he thinks that he can thwart the plans of God and every time God just pushes him to one side it humiliates him and he moves away with his tail between his legs you know but I haven't failed to to destroy the lineage of, of Christ by destroying Israel um, we see him the same person trying to snare Christ into succumbing to the flesh just like Adam did you know the first thing he did when man was placed on the earth was snare the flesh you know to introduce Eve to uh, the beauty of the fruit and uh, the wisdom that would be gained if, he, if she ate it and she looked at it and all of a sudden her flesh became all powerful and overpowered her spirit and she took it because it was good for food and it was wise want something to make you wise and she fell for it you and you are Satan as we go come to Matthew chapter 4 he tries the same trick on Jesus the second man or the last man the second Adam you know and she, he puts the, the hunger before him make this, these stones bread 
He puts fame before him. Jump off the temple and let your angels catch you to the rapturous applause of everyone in the city. He puts um, so many things about fame and uh, hunger and of course pride. Bow down to me and all this can be yours. Trying to snare Christ with the flesh. You know the flesh is a powerful ally uh, to Satan and his schemes of hunger, pride and fame. You know they snare so many of us. Uh, sometimes I think we are easy pickings for him. But he come up against his march when he tried to do it to Christ. You know because Christ went to the cross. So a few years ago we talking about the plans of Satan to keep him from the cross. Right up until the very time that he was on the cross that there was temptation to come off the cross. Because the cross was the death knell of Satan. You know, but his plans were frustrated. And the Lord went to the cross. And now of course we see the next part of these wicked uh, opposition. You know, and it's um, recorded perfectly in Acts 4 for us. You know, when uh, asked a similar question as the Jews asked Jesus... This is what they asked the disciples. Remember when they imprisoned them? They had just healed the man at the gate. And um, because of that they had preached in Jesus' name. And the authorities had uh, taken them into custody. And this is the question that they asked. By what power or by what name have you done this? Exactly the same as what they asked Jesus. By what authority? What sign can you give us that will allow you to do all these things? And here we are, the same question, by what power or by what name have you done this? And they answered, they answered, by the name of Jesus Christ, Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And there it is again, the Christ, his title, his role. Taken on now by the apostles. You know, and here we are this evening. And it's our um, privilege and our responsibility to introduce our society to our Christ. To our Messiah. You see, the apostles took up the strain on the day of Pentecost. And then they went through their life. You know, and many people have taken up the strain over the 2,000 years that have existed since that moment. And now we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it is our responsibility to introduce Christ to our society because the needs of our society are exactly the same needs as the needs of the, of the Apostles' society and Christ's society and David's society. Everyone, every society that has ever lived on this earth as a need of Jesus, as a need of the Messiah. You know, but if you remember on that day when they were released from prison, they immediately went to a prayer meeting. Prayer, prayer meeting. How old fashioned was that? They went to a prayer meeting. And just listen to what they said. And there's a, I got a big um, verse for us to read. Lord, you are God who made heaven, earth and the sea 
and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ for truly your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand on your purpose determined before to be done now Lord look on their threats and grant you servants that with all boldness they may speak the word now notice they changed the word from anointed to Christ it's against the Lord and his Christ which of course is right because here we are speaking in Greek and notice how the world has come against him Herod, Pontius Pilate the Gentiles and the people of Israel you know and this is so close to the Psalm 2 description of the kings of the earth you see the disciples were not surprised that their message was given such a hostile reception you know if the Daily Mirror had uh, been written in those days then it would have said Psalm 2 enacted in Jerusalem today you know we will go on as our studies go on from you when we, when we sort of uh, escape the, the gravitational pull of the Psalms when we get back into um, sort of more contemporary things we will see that those four groups of people are still aligned against Jesus and we will find that uh, at the very end of the age whenever that will be those four groups of people will still be against Jesus and then when he comes one of those groups will repent and become saved and will receive him as the Messiah but I would suggest that the other three will still be against him Herod who's Herod Herod is a pagan king uh, he had very loose connections to the Jews and he was a uh, a nasty piece of work to say the least Pontius Pilate of course uh, represents the empires of men and of course the Gentiles represents the nations of the world and there will become a time as we go through these studies that we will find those people gathered together against Jesus when he comes uh, to take the world to himself you know the great bone of contention that festered with the Jews concerning Jesus was the fact that he claimed to be God in the flesh you know culminating of course in John chapter 10 when perhaps for the first time uh, the Jews really showed their true colours you know he was uh, talking and speaking and claiming to be God 
And then uh, this is what they say to him, or this is what he says, I am the Father, our one. You know, which uh, really speaking is, I'm God in the flesh. And then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. Which one of these works are you stoning me? And then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, um, if ever you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, he will always tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God in the New Testament. Uh, well, I totally disagree with that. Uh, because the Jews who were there at this present moment of time knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, I and the Father are one. He was making himself God. You know, and, um, and yet, of all these people, these Jews should have welcomed such a claim. Because this should have been a part of their great expectation. When they talked about Messiah, when they talked about Christ, when they talked about the Lord's anointed, then it should have followed. It should have followed that the person who would come would be a man, and yet at the same time, God. That should have been their expectation. Now, you know, it's still the same is, uh, true today. Are the Jews expecting the Messiah to be God in the flesh? I don't think they are. I, still, I don't think they've learned their lesson yet. Because they won't accept Jesus, Psalm 2, they are blind to it. They can't understand what God is saying. But they should have. Because just a, a quick reading of this psalm would tell us that Messiah would be God himself. You know, it's there in black and white. It should have been a part of their expectations. But they are fools to think anything different. Because Psalm 2, the same psalm that introduces the Messiah to us, tells us plainly that he is God in the flesh. Listen to what it says. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Let's see what we have. My king. First of all, he's my king. Christ is my king, says God. You know, I mean, know to me that the Jews asked Samuel for a king. Samuel was a bit put out. And, uh, but these, God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. So God gives them what they wanted. And he chose for them the stature of the flesh, Saul. He was a man that was head and shoulders above everyone else. You know, and he, he sort of prefigured all the great kings of the earth. You know, this great big man, handsome, air-flowing, blue eyes. You know, the... the um, the stereotypical king of the, of the ancient countries. And here he is. He's Saul. Saul. But of course he fails miserably. You know, we, are, we can be assured that the way of the flesh will always fail. 
You know, never try to do anything by the flesh. You know, we saw on Sunday morning about the flesh. If we trust in the flesh, if we trust in man, then we will remain a barren shrub in a desert place. But if we put our trust in Christ, then we will be the tree that's planted by the river of water. But God gave them what they wanted and showed them how much of a failure the flesh is. You know, whether it's on the bigger picture or whether it's personal, the flesh will always fail us. Never trust your flesh. Never trust your flesh. So many Christians are brought into so much bondage because they've trusted their flesh. I'm going to do this. I'm going to steel myself against this temptation. I'm not going to go here. I'm going to do... You know, Sunday night we talked about the disciples who said, you know, I'll die with you. I'll never be offended. I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But the flesh always fails. You want even in our Christian life, our flesh will always fail us. That's what Romans 1 to 8 have been all about. It's been about putting the flesh on the back burner and allowing Jesus to take the strain. He is our um, justification. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. He is our glorification. You know, if you think that you can do anything for God in your own flesh, then forget it. Christ has done it all. He's accomplished everything for us. That moment when he said it is finished, when he was hanging upon the cross, really means that your salvation is complete in him. So don't ever try to, no, I'm I'm born again, but I'm going to try my best. (laughs) No, the flesh will always fail us. We'll always end up like this barren shrub, this miserable looking thing. So what does God do? He chooses his man. His man. The man through whom God's king would eventually come. Little David. Of no stature at all. A non-entity in his own town. Forgotten by his own father. Not considered by his own brothers. Such was his lack of anything of the flesh. He was a kid and he was watching the sheep. But he was a man after God's own heart. And David became king. And he eventually set his throne in Zion. We've been in Zion, some of us. Or near there anyway. You know, and if he was to put any um, Discovery Channel on the television, you will find that uh, the city of David, the city, Zion itself, is being excavated as we speak. And they are finding lots of things that relate to David's period. You know, and you're in Psalm 2. The exact scenario is displayed. My king, my holy hill of Zion. Now the wise men, some thousand years later, they go to the exact same place. You know, they went to Zion, Mount Zion, in search of Messiah. They go to the palace that exists on uh, the hill of Zion. Because where else would you go to find the king? You know that, and you know the question that he asks. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now were the Jews happy with Herod? No they weren't. Herod was a terrible tyrant. Herod shouldn't have been anywhere near the Jewish throne. He wasn't even Jewish. Why he was there? 
You know, when they, they're looking at him all the time and thinking, we hate you. We want rid of you. We want the king of the Jews to come and sit on the throne. Were they happy with the Romans? Of course they weren't. The Romans were tyrannical. The Romans were crucifying them, left, right and centre, destroying their, their culture and their, their buildings and their families. You know, and the Jews would be looking at them and think, we hate you, we want rid of you, when are you going to go? We want the king of the Jews to come and sit on your throne. Were they happy with them? No. So you was their opportunity to rid themselves of the two tormentors and choose their Messiah to come and redeem them from that. But they didn't. You know, and if you read Matthew chapter 1 or 2 when the wise men came and they asked the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? It said Herod was disturbed and all Israel with him. That's pretty strange, isn't it? They were waiting for him. And they had a job for him to do. There was Herod on this side of uh, the temple. And there was the Romans on this side of the temple. Crushing the Jewish culture and the Jewish religious system to death. And they wanted to be free. And the one born in Bethlehem was the one to do it. And they rejected him. They didn't want a baby wrapped in swaddling bands. They wanted a mighty warrior to come and undo their ailments. And Jesus failed to fit the bill. But, you know, but as we read on, we move on from king to son. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. A king can be a human being. A son has to be God. A king can be a human being. You know, David was a human being. A simple human being. But his son, the son of David, the king which was set on God's holy hill of Zion, was also his son. My son, today I have begotten you. Now I got two sons. You know, and um, do you know that both of them are of the same essence as myself? No different at all. You know, there's a bit of Pauline in them. There's a bit of me in them. There's a bit of my father and mother in them. There's a bit of Pauline's father and mother in them. But they are basically of the same essence as me. They are human. Because that is the principle of creation. You know, when God created the world, He said these words. He said, And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself, according to its kind. He goes on to say that the animals bring forth according to their kind. You know, an horse will bring forth a horse. Much to the dismay of Charles Darwin and, uh, and all the other sort of deceived people. Richard Dawkins, I was thinking of, I like to get Richard in on a Thursday, as you know. Uh, a horse has always brought forth a horse, and a dog has always brought forth a dog, and a man has always brought forth 
a human being. And notice it says here, Today I have begotten you. And so Christ, having been begotten of God, has the same qualities of deity. He is the same essence as God. You know, and uh, in Jesus, we see God himself. I and the Father are one, he says. No one can say that unless they are God. That's why the Jews wanted to stone him. This was his claim. That yes, I'm in the flesh. But I'm God in the flesh. You know, that's why it was so lovely to you, Matthew, talking about the transfiguration. Because God in the flesh broke through the skin of Jesus and showed them exactly who he was. He's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He is God. But more than that, he's our God. He's our God and we're here tonight to, to worship him and to thank him for all that he has done. He is also begotten. Today I have begotten you. Now we won't have time to fully understand this phrase, but it's repeated three times for us in the New Testament. I have begotten you. What does it mean? What does it suggest to us? You know, and in Hebrews chapter 1, um, it says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he brings his, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Which is an obvious really, um, reference to Christ's physical birth at Bethlehem. God brought him into the world. But then we go to Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow the Holy One to see corruption. Which of course again is an obvious reference to Christ's physical re res resurrection. You know, part of, the, of that verse there was actually quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And then of course in Hebrews chapter 5... So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Which is another obvious reference to his birth into the eternal priesthood. So in just one remark, in Psalm 2, we see that Jesus is the firstborn of a pure and sanctified human race before God who will spend eternity with God. Never before had someone been born of a woman spotless and pure and holy. He is the firstborn. Why? Because he is God's son in the flesh. Psalm 2 tells us that he is God's son in the flesh. Then of course he tells us that he is the firstborn from the dead and heads up a race where death will no longer be an enemy to any of us. And also as we look at Hebrews chapter 5 he is the first person who is able to stand before God in his own righteousness. No one else can do that. 
No one as you can do that. I can do that. The greatest person that has ever walked the earth besides Christ cannot stand in his own righteousness in before God. But you and I, because we've got such a great high priest who is pure and spotless and without sin, we stand in his righteousness. So this psalm is telling us that he is the son of, of a new, the beginning of a new race. He is the beginning of a race that is unaffected by the ravages of sin. And he is the beginning of a new race that is righteous before God. And for eternity we will relax in the righteousness of Christ as we spend our time in the presence of God. The righteousness of Christ. The psalm finishes with some wise words. Wise words to the kings of the earth and to anyone who will listen, of course. Look, boys. This is my uh, sort of paraphrase. Christ is destined to reign forever. He is the sovereign of eternity and he will rule with a rod of iron. Best Get on his side. You know, this is the advice that God has given to the world. Hasn't up until now they haven't took it. By and large, the world has gone against the advice of God. Here tonight, we can say that we have gone with the advice of God because we are here to kiss the sun. Kiss the sun, says David, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. See, whatever he does to this world, and he can fry it with a look, he's got an awful lot more in his armory. You know, the world can have all their different, great, big, different things, but they are no match to just a little of his wrath. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And here we are tonight, just a small pocket of people. In the Ronda Valley or in Astrid, Astrid, who have joined together tonight to express our trust in Jesus. We have kissed the Son. We have placed ourselves on His side. We are clothed in His righteousness. We are part of His resurrection. We are a part of the family, the eternal family of God. So there we can see the psalm. Um, I hope you can see now why I was I was reluctant to move away from it we've got his title here he is the Messiah, he is the Christ we've got his ministry here he's come to do all the wonderful things that Isaiah 61 tells us we've got his birth in this passage of scripture we've got his resurrection in this passage of scripture we've got his position as king and we've got his position as priest and this last part will tell us that we see his sovereignty. He is the one who reigns forever and forever. All out of this one psalm written 1,000 years before we even entered into the realm of time itself. Now, as I said earlier, uh, we won't be going through all ten psalms with such a fine tooth comb as tonight. I hope anyway. But there is certainly so much to learn about our Lord and the prophetic nature of the psalm. So perhaps 
next week, perhaps even the next two weeks, we'll look at how Christ is prophesied in these amazing hymns. For his name's sake. Amen. Amen.